0: Hey, hi guys! I had a really embarrassing coughing fit Sunday night, so that's why there's all of these tools here to hopefully prevent that from happening again. All right, Ephesians three. <clears throat> so, anyone here a big like mystery thriller? Maybe the crime podcasts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my husband thinks I'm twisted because I love that kind of stuff. I love a good mystery because I think it's fun to watch a story unfold especially if it keeps me on my toes with twists and turns. And I'm one of those people that's always trying to guess the ending. <clears throat> so recently I watched a show on Netflix called Clickbait. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't, I might reveal a few details, but I'll try not to give it away completely. And I asked Rebecca if this was something I could talk about at Bible study. Because <laughs> it is about murder, <laughs> But then I remembered in Joshua, I taught on Joshua and the Israelites just slaying the Canaanites. And I've seen Brian Dermody start a sermon with a video of lions mauling other animals. So I think this is pretty good. (laughs) So clickbait is about this guy named Nick Brewer who seems to have it all. He has a successful career as an athletic trainer. He has a big house, a beautiful family, a happy marriage. And then one morning, he is kidnapped, and a viral video gets posted online of him in a van, and the kidnappers make him hold a sign that says, if the video gets five million views, that he'll die. And his sister sees this video. And so while his sister and their family is desperately searching to find where he is, you see the views on the video go from hundreds to thousands to millions, and then it hits five million. And then the next morning, they find his body. And the rest of the series is Nick's sister and family trying to find the person who murdered their brother, husband, and father. And it's full of all these twists and turns, and I never knew who I could trust. And for a while, I started to not like Nick Brewer, because he was framed as this internet predator that had killed a woman, which is why he had been kidnapped. So, as each episode goes, I start changing what I think happened, who I think did it, who was involved, and at the end there's a really big plot twist that I won't tell you, <laughs> but if, you're in an, if you want a show that's a little dark, it's pretty good. But I was texting my friends, like, I figured it out. I know who did it. I know how it happened. I know when it happened. It was this, this, and this. I'm a genius. And then I watched the next episode, and I was totally wrong. So by the time I got to the end, I was like jaw on the floor, like dumbfounded. I was shocked I hadn't seen it coming, and I was impressed that they had written that. And I was like, ah, they fooled me. But have you ever been shocked by the ending of a book or a movie like that? Are you an audible guesser like me, telling whoever is sitting next to you that you know what's coming or texting people when you're alone because you have to tell someone that you are right? we are really fun to watch shows with. But were you shocked when you found out that Darth Vader was the father of Luke Skywalker? Or if you've seen the movie Shutter Island with Leonardo DiCaprio, did you know that he wasn't a detective and that he was a patient in an insane asylum? Or if you have lots of little kids, maybe you don't watch a lot of movies, did you know, were you expecting that Takah, the fire monster in Moana, was also going to be Te Fiti? The goddess. At some level, even if we're not audibly sharing our thoughts as we're watching stories unfold, we're guessing in our minds and we're trying to find where the plot is going. <clears throat> and that's exactly what happened with the nation of Israel. They had been studying the plot or the, or the Torah for years and they thought they knew how the story would end, but they were in for quite a surprise. So we've been learning the overarching theme of Ephesians is how God is bringing all things back together through Jesus. And so far, Paul has taught us about God's family and our identity in Christ. And in chapter three, we see God's big story revealed and Paul's small role in that story. We'll see how God drew near to Paul, the person who seemed the farthest from him, And who all was actually included in God's family? Was it just for the Jews? Paul is getting ready to highlight the twists and turns of God's big story. So if you have your Bibles and want to open up to chapter 3, it starts out like this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then further down, verses 7 through 10, we read, Of this gospel... might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The word mystery is repeated over and over in this passage. Why do you think that is? The only way to understand what Paul is trying to say is for us to understand the full story. And like every story, every movie, every book has an author. And that's point number one. We are not the author of our story. In chapter one, we read that God had been the sole author of the big story of the Bible since before the foundation of the earth. And we have the entire Bible in our hands, so we can read the story from the beginning to the cross, and we know how the entire story will end with the return of Christ. But the people in the Old Testament were living within the story as it was leading up to the cross they thought they knew the storyline the chosen people of israel the jews were going to receive the blessings of god the jews thought that they knew how the story would play out <clears throat> they knew the covenant promise to abram in genesis 12:2-3 that says i will make you into a great nation i will bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It was so obvious to them that all of God's blessings would be bestowed on the Jews through Abram's family line. But then Paul chooses to remind them of his personal testimony, which couldn't be a more perfect example of God showing his authority. As author the chapter begins with Paul almost reintroducing himself saying for this reason I Paul a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God that was given to me for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelation so remember Paul was formally Saul, the Jewish Pharisee that was persecuting Christians. We went to Philippians chapter 3 this week and we read his impressive Jewish resume. Circumcised on the eighth day, member of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew born of Hebrews, Pharisee, zealous, blameless, following the law, persecuting the church. It was on there, that was included. He was the ultimate Jew, and he knew exactly how his life story was going to play out. He believed he was the author of the story. However, nothing will get in Christ's way to be the author, and that's when he steps in. Saul is introduced to us at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. After Stephen was stoned to death, it says witnesses threw their garments at the feet of Saul, who approved of Stephen's death. The story continues in Acts 3, when it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was writing his own legacy. Saul, the conqueror of Christians, the halter of heresy. Have you ever been so confident in a life decision or a future plan? One in which maybe God wasn't consulted? One in which maybe you've had in your mind for a really long time? The picturesque ideal for your marriage, your family, your job, your salary, how to lead your ministry? Saul's story comes to a drastic halt one day. In Acts chapter 9, it begins with Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and going to the high priest asking for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any Christians, he could bring them to Jerusalem bound. So this is who we're working with in that whole, like, write your own story, don't be the author analogy. Saul was writing his story with a Sharpie, like one of those big, wide Sharpies. And out of nowhere, he's knocked off his horse. And the true author takes authority. Saul falls to the ground and hears the voice of Jesus saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me when Saul stands back up he's blind and is told to go into the city and wait to be told what to do so for three days Saul sits blind and waiting in Damascus Jesus sends the disciple Ananias a vision to tell him what he wants Ananias to do simply saying when Lord or Ananias says Lord I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all that call your name. Like, hello, I don't volunteer as tribute. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. After meeting with Ananias, who delivered God's mission for him, Paul was baptized. His life made a complete 180, and he began his ministry for Christ. So Paul, who once believed he would die a righteous Jew, someone who described himself as blameless, and was previously persecuting Jesus himself, was now proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior in the synagogues. A man who described himself as zealous, which I read doesn't just mean enthusiastic. To be zealous meant a willingness to use violence against other Jews who threatened the sanctity of Israel's separation from the Gentiles. He is now appointed to be the one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And let's not forget where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He's in prison. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. Can you imagine a bigger plot twist? Other than maybe the cross, the resurrection, and the fact that God came down in flesh as a baby— It's a pretty big plot twist, though. Like, it's incredible that we have an author who is gracious enough to correct us. This might have felt like an unexpected and abrupt turn of events for Paul. But remember, in chapter 1, we learned that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He had long before been chosen, but now... Paul was being called a zealous that was now marked with meekness, not violence, humility, not pride. What's at risk if we try to be the author? What's the danger of taking the pen into our own hands? What's the problem with our own life's penmanship? We can forget that not only is it not our story to write, but we are also not the main character. Christ is. Have you ever felt like Jesus knocked you off your horse and took the pen out of your hands? I sure have. My husband and I are from central Illinois. And when I was a new mom, I was really lonely. I worked part-time at the hospital so, if you work in healthcare, you know how hard it can be to actually hang out with your work friends outside of work. And my one friend that had a baby as well had just moved to Nashville. So, I wanted nothing more than to just move home and be close to our families. The only thing that hesitated us was that we could not find a church back home. So, my husband Sean and I began praying that Salt Network would plant a church at Illinois State University in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, which is about an hour from where our families live. We printed out a picture of the campus, and through most of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, we prayed over it every night. Sean reached out to Mark and asked if Illinois State was even on the radar for a church plant, to find out that it, someone was potentially interested in planting there, but it would be a minimum of five years out. I think Mark jokingly said, who would want to move to Illinois? <laughs> well, we didn't want to plan our future over something five years out, so we shut the door on moving home, and we just dove headfirst into serving at Veritas, saying yes to every opportunity that was thrown our way. And then I was placed in a D group to help me make some friends and with three other moms who became my very best friends as we Marco Poloed our way through quarantine life with small kids. I started teaching in women's ministry. Sean accepted a part-time position on staff with Veritas Kids. And for the first time, I no longer referred to our visits to Illinois as going home. Iowa City was our home and I didn't want to leave. Like Paul, I thought I had a really clear vision for my life. I would continue with Weekly D Group and our monthly Mama Nights. I would continue saying yes to teaching opportunities. My kids would go to school. Maybe we would join the homeschool co-op with Veritas. I'd finally get to go to VST. My kids would grow up alongside my best friend's kids. Isla would marry Caden Hodge. And we'd eventually move to 11 Durham Court, this cute little blue house about a mile from our current neighborhood and this cul-de-sac with tons of trees. Because the one thing that the old neighborhoods of Iowa City have that the new neighborhoods don't are big trees. And I loved loved that neighborhood. We walk there almost daily. We call it Mama's Neighborhood and Mama's House. Then, Just before we had our third baby in the spring, I got knocked off my horse. Sean received an email saying that Keystone Church, a Salt Network church based in Ankeny, would be planting a church in Bloomington Normal in the fall of 2022. And they had heard that we would be interested. When Sean first told me, my reaction was, absolutely not. Who would wanna move to Illinois? (laughs) I think my quoted words were, you will have to drag me by my hair, kicking and screaming. And what began as a phone call with the lead planter, Daniel, to honor our former prayers and that the advice of Mark led to a FaceTime date with him and his wife, which led to him coming to Iowa City to spend time with Sean, our kids loving him, which led to a vision trip with just him the couple, and us to Bloomington, which led to a lot of prayer and conversations between Sean and I and our mentors, which led me on my knees in the bathroom, crying because I had never heard God speak so clearly to me before. And as I watched our future in Iowa City fade in front of my eyes, I told Sean that I felt like we were being called to Bloomington. And he agreed. We told Daniel and Kayla that we would be joining them in Bloomington on a Friday. Three days later, on that following Monday, 11 Durham Court went up for sale. Can you think of a time in your life when you did let God take control of the pen? Was it worth it? What emotions do you remember? Do you ever regret it? The answer is almost always no. God, in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom, rarely lets us become comfortable as Christians. He stretches and grows us and challenges our faith daily. The question I have for you ladies is this. Would you rather continue writing your own story and live comfortably, never stepping out in faith for Jesus, or maybe you'd rather even continue anxiously as you constantly try to fulfill your own plot lines through your heavy-burdened life, trying to make choices for the idealized life? What is the one thing God wants you to get out of the way on. What's the one thing in your life that you feel like God is trying to knock over and clear the way for something on his agenda? Because the real risk in not getting out of God's way isn't losing our comfort, it isn't increased anxiety. It's losing out on the joyous, the special, even the holy moments that God has prepared for you. We can know that joy follows pursuing the Lord in life. The Bible promises us that. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Your desire, really, at the end of the day, is to feel the unforgettable, the irresistible, what's that children's Bible, like, never stopping, never giving up, unending, always and forever love of Christ. And I can attest to you that although Bloomington, Illinois, was not an easy choice to make, and I sobbed when 11 Durham Court closed on October 8th because I creeped on it. I can already feel peace and joy in the decision and excitement knowing that the Lord is in it. We can lean into biblical promises like Psalm 37.4 in times where we try to take control. Verses like this help us remember that the Bible is true. Its promises are true for us today, including how the Bible ends. And that's point number two. We know how the story ends. I'm gonna take a drink to avoid a coffee fit. Okay, <clears throat> one more story. I ran cross country in high school and my school was super small. So we combined teams with another really small school. And before we came up as freshmen, the girls cross country team was okay. They weren't amazing, but they weren't that bad. And then when my class came up, the group of freshmen from both schools were really good. And so we started winning every single meet that we were attending. So we went into the state meet ranked second behind our arch nemesis, Winnebago. And our jerseys, our colors were orange and black, so we wore these orange kind of spandex holographic-looking jerseys, so we were like running targets. You couldn't miss us. So we went into state ranked second, but we knew that that meant nothing, because we were going to win. We had been preparing for it the entire season, through our training and also through some weird stuff. Like, we cursed Winnebago. We had this little bunny that we thought was cursed, we shattered it, and every time we had a meet where we ran against Winnebago, we would throw a little piece in their tent. <laughs> okay, we were setting ourselves up for success. And it seemed to be working. One girl got mono, she recovered. One girl hurt, got hurt, she was back by state, though, so don't worry. It was, it was a fair race. But then, <clears throat> the week leading up to state, our coach devised a genius plan. He had found old black tops, that the team had worn in previous years, but it hadn't been worn in five or plus five plus years. So he made us swear that we would say nothing, not even to our families, and we took this very seriously. So we told nobody. In the morning of state, we had our jackets on and we did not take them off until we approached the starting line and we took them off and we went black on. But no, everyone was in their own world, so no one noticed. So the race started and my mom tells me And from their standpoint, they were panicking because the course that we were running is a big loop. And so they're watching all these girls run by, and they're like, where are they? We don't see them. Where's the orange? But we we had passed them. They missed us. It was the perfect subtle twist to throw everybody off. And we crossed that finish line, arms up, in victory because we knew that we crushed them. We got second by one point. But we were so confident that we knew how the season was going to end. And that is kind of like how Paul was talking about in Ephesians 3. He tells us of this plot twist in the biblical narrative. Paul says that God revealed a mystery to him that the Gentiles were fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, <clears throat> 4, 5 says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In our homework, we were asked if Paul made this new discovery or if it was God's plan from the very beginning. Was this mystery not made known at all? Or was it made known to other generations, but not as clearly or fully or precisely as it had now been revealed? And I think the answer to that question is wrapped up in one tiny word in verse 5, as. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. John Piper described a mystery not as something so obscure that humans can't grasp it, but something that had once been concealed for some time and has now been revealed. Knowing what this mystery is, we can look back on the original promise to Abram and see the hints of the mystery. Looking back on Genesis 12, 2 through 3, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. <clears throat> Our study this week had us look forward into Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9 say, Know then that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. and the scripture, which is just what we read in Genesis 12, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham and saying, In you all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This means the blessing Abraham enjoyed is the same blessing the Gentiles now enjoy as people who believe in the Messiah. God promised universal blessing through Abraham And now the full meaning of that is being made clear. There are no racial, social, or spiritual distinctions. Jew or Gentile, now all are welcome to the table through Jesus. Plot twist, I don't have a point three. (laughs) But I do have some more application. So what do we do knowing these things? I think Paul describes everything perfectly in his final p- prayer. First, we should approach God confidently. <clears throat> How long do you take to approach God when you feel convicted? Hours? Days? Weeks? How long do you take before asking God for wisdom in a life decision? How long do you take to approach God After you sin. We recently cleaned our garage out and Sean found these old, janky, broken, rusted tomato cages. So you would think, throw them in the trash. But instead of throwing them in the trash, he says, I'm going to go set them on the curb and post them on Facebook. Someone will take them for free. And I looked at him like he was crazy. Nobody wants that. It's garbage. No one wants these tangled up cages, but he was so confident that someone would take them. And literally within minutes of posting it, I think he had at least three people asking if they could have them. Sin is like approaching God in confidence. It's like Sean approaching the curb with those busted tomato cages. It can feel heavy and messy. It can hurt. But you can carry that to God with confidence. Remember, no one is excluded from the blessings of God. This is exactly why Paul, God chose Paul to deliver his message to the Gentiles. Paul was chosen before the creation of the world. And yet before he was called, he devoted his life to persecuting those he would eventually lead to salvation. God could have called him at any time before the road to Damascus, but he didn't. He allowed Paul to commit all of those sins and cause all of that harm prior to calling him so that no one could say that they were beyond the limits of God's grace. You can approach God with confidence knowing that the same grace that was extended to the least Of all the saints will be extended to you. You can approach God confidently, knowing that the Lord has a purpose for all the saints that he calls to himself. Next, like Paul, we should bow our knees before the Father in prayer and worship. Paul stopped and took time to reflect on how God transformed his life and used him in the big story of the Bible, which caused him to just fall on his knees in adoration. When he transitions into his prayer, he's amped up, and he encourages the readers to reflect on how God has worked in their own stories. Take some time and look back on your own life and see how God has used you. Take time to journal it or write memories on sticky notes and stick them in your favorite books for daily reminders or sing in the shower at the top of your lungs or sit in solitude and just look at the stars all while you contemplate the hundreds of micro-moments that led up to the one moment that the Holy Spirit entered your willing heart and regenerated it and to rebirth you into a new creation. If the God of all creation can transform you, how can we doubt that letting him take control of his own story is a good thing? Celebrate your salvation. Celebrate when you stepped out in faith and followed God's lead. Take time to verbally tell Jesus in prayer, thank you thank you for the knock me off my horse moments and for the gentle shepherding staff correction moments in your life all while he's leading us down paths of righteousness for his name's sake and finally don't be discouraged in suffering i know easier said than done but remember Paul is writing this from prison and his story eventually ends there. He's so aware of his union with Christ that it changes the way that he prays. He's not praying to get out of prison and he provides us with some comfort in his prayer in verses 18 through 19 that say, may you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When you first read this, it can sound a little confusing because Paul is telling us to comprehend the love of Christ and in the same breath says that Christ surpasses all knowledge. He's incomprehensible. And God is incomprehensible. We will not know everything that God is up to But by faith, the Holy Spirit is at power within us to let us comprehend the love of Christ. Suffering does not surprise God. Unlike me, who's always trying to guess what's coming next and is completely shocked by the twists and turns in God's life, God's not, or in my life, (laughs) God's not. He's in control, and he loves us and sent Jesus to die on a cross for us. Paul has his eyes fixed on eternity, which helps to consider his pain and suffering here on earth, which is brief compared to the joy that we will experience with Christ. And here's the thing. You may think that suffering means that you've chosen the incorrect path. You've disallowed God to be the author, and in fairness, if you have unforbidden sin, that could be the case. However, it very well could be, and absolutely does happen, that when we choose to follow God through faith, follow Him in His story, that we face hardships but we don't follow a God who is unable to sympathize with us. He suffered in more ways than we do. He faced the full force of sin and did not bow down. He faced the feelings of rejection. He knows what it's like to feel lonely. He knows what it's like to be frustrated. He knows how hard purity can be. He knows the pain of loss. He gets it. And no matter how hard the path of being a living follower of Jesus gets, Paul is saying that our ability to approach God in confidence with incomprehensible joy is never off the table. This is is part of how God has written the rules. Through Christ, We have access, the curtain is torn. Ladies, don't be the author and remember how the story ends. Be confident, worship the author, and never let life make you question your identity as a daughter of the most high. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we acknowledge that you are the author of the story of the Bible and that your writing is more creative and beautiful than we could ever pen. We thank you for choosing characters like Paul so that we can be confident knowing that when we come to you that your grace will extend beyond us. Let us take time to reflect God on how... You have worked in our lives as we move forward and that we can display that joy and encouragement to others as we move forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.